Christmas season in the Twin Cities is rich in cultural traditions. Choirs, orchestras, carolers have been performing throughout the Twin Cities this month. As you know, from the Holodazzle Parade on Nicollet Mall, to the Christmas Carol at the Guthrie, to the Nutcracker at the State Theater, to the eighth floor display at Marshall Fields, to the multiple Christmas Eve services that will be held in many churches. Wherever you look, holiday traditions are in full swing in the Twin Cities. Time-honored traditions are being observed in our homes as well and among our extended families. There, is, there are Christmas decorations and there are gift exchanges and special holiday meals and treats. We're surrounded at this time of year by the sights and the sounds and the tastes of Christmas time. Tradition. Now, if these same traditions, I think I may speak for you, but if these same traditions surrounded me for the entire year, they would become pretty quickly meaningless. In fact, I think they would probably sicken us after a while. If that's all the music we ever heard and that's all the decorations we ever saw and this is all that we ever did was get together with extended family for gift exchanges, it would become pretty mundane pretty quickly, wouldn't it? You know, the beauty in all of this tradition is its seasonal nature. These traditions supply the time-released comfort of cultural familiarity. They comprise something of an annual reminder yet that, yes, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is where we live. They comprise this reminder to us, but when all the concerts and plays and programs and activities are over, when all the decorations are packed away and the Christmas treats consumed, we've generally had quite enough of it for a while, haven't we? The joy of next year's Christmas traditions depend upon our ability to forget it all for 11 months and then to come back and then it's good. But it is in that that we find the danger of the birth of Jesus Christ and its emphasis at this time of year. Therein lies the danger of mixing in with our holiday traditions the birth narrative of Jesus. Christ's incarnation must not be treated as a tradition, and we must guard against that. A tradition which provides the seasonal comfort of religious familiarity and then it's boxed away again for 11 months. We must recognize that the incarnation of Christ is ultimately not a tradition. It is ultimately a doctrine on which our eternal salvation depends. I worry about these churches that have now five services on Christmas Eve and another on Christmas Day. I think of where are all these people coming from and why are, are they all coming to hear about Christ at this time of year? And they'll be back again next year. But I wonder how much of it is because Jesus and His birth is a tradition. Religious familiarity, the comfort of the repetitive annual reminder but then we box it all away for 11 months. 
Christ's incarnation is a doctrine on which our salvation depends. The incarnation is not then a tradition that thrives on being ignored most of the year. For born-again believers, this doctrine is like oxygen. We live on it all the time, and we must. So let us take this opportunity to breathe deeply of this doctrine this morning, as we have been breathing deeply of it in the expressions of our songs. Let's inhale the aroma again of Christ's incarnation. And to this end, I invite you to this first chapter in John in verse 14, this great classic text of the incarnation of Christ, which we've read earlier this morning. Notice it with me again, John chapter 1 and verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. As Pastor Pratt mentioned earlier, John does not give us the birth narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is enough for us to consider in John's thinking in this gospel the doctrine, the revealed truth about the coming of Christ. So let's sit in this doctrine for a few moments. And I'd like us to do so by noting in verse 14 three key words, hooks on which the rest of this text hangs. You see, first of all, the word word. Secondly, the word flesh. And thirdly, the word glory. Let's consider these three words. Word. We find in this the identification of Jesus. The identification of Jesus. John identifies Jesus as the Word. Let's consider that in cultural context for a moment. I am not exaggerating to say that you could, a scholar could invest his entire life and career in the study of this one word. That is in part because logos, the Greek word for word, logos, was widely used by Greek philosophers to designate what they conceived as the controlling mind or the reason of the universe. The reason that ordered and ruled all things. In fact, logos was an eternal principle that gave meaning to everything. And so the Greek philosophers, renowned to this day for their reason, saw in the word logos a key concept of all that life is. And there is much written about this one word in the Greek philosophers. This word was perhaps the grandest concept that they ever devised in all of their thinking. And John grabs this bigger-than-life word, and he says, that's Jesus. This controlling mind, this controlling reason, this order that rules the universe, this principle that gives meaning to it all, that is my Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know, as in using this bigger-than-life philosophical word, John does not shrink the concept at all. In fact, he enlivens it, he enhances it. And he really messes with the minds of the Greek philosophers as well as with the Jewish thinkers who paralleled that thought. Let's think of the word in the context of John. There's its, the culture of the day. This great, noble concept, this deep concept. John says that's Christ. He is the word. Who is the word, according to John? We read it earlier, beginning at verse 1. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. He's pushing the Greek philosophers already at this point, but not offending them too much just at this moment. But here is the shocker of it all as John delivers this word to us. The shocker of it all, as Bernard has put it, is that the logos of philosophy is the Jesus of history. And that is shocking. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ was with God in eternity past. Jesus Christ is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. It is Jesus who gives meaning to all things. To identify the great Logos as a Jewish man was utterly silly, if not scandalous to the Greek philosophers. It was even offensive to the Jewish philosophers who substituted for this concept the word wisdom. But John unabashedly continues. He's taking their word... He's saying, as Paul did essentially to the Athenians, this God whom you do not know, I declare to you. He takes this word and he, begin, he continues to turn the philosophical world upside down when he says this word became flesh. Word, the identification of Jesus. Flesh, the incarnation of Jesus. The word became flesh. What does that mean? It means very simply that God the Son became a human being. It means that Jesus was born naturally with skin and muscle and tendons and bones. It means that he had a heart that pumped blood through the blood vessels of his body. He was flesh. He became flesh. As the text says, this Greek word became, understood very carefully, indicates that at one point in time, Jesus underwent a change, taking on properties that he did not have before the change, namely a body. And what does that reveal to us? It reveals to us, first of all, his real humanity. Jesus was not temporarily veiled in the shell of a body. We've got to be careful as we sing that old hymn, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. The idea there is not that he was temporarily veiled in a shell of a body. He did not merely appear to be a man. Really wasn't, but looked like it as the Docetus taught. He was not two persons sharing one body, one divine and one human, as Nestorius perhaps taught. He was not a half-and-half half mix of human and divine, somehow entirely unique in that sense. The Word became a man. It reveals his real humanity. Secondly, this phrase, became flesh, reveals his two natures. The Jesus who became man was fully God. He was not merely God-like. He was the Word, as we have seen. He was God and was with God. This means that two natures, the human and the divine, obtained in Jesus without modification, without confusion, without division or separation. Jesus was the God-man. He became flesh. We see his humanity. We see his deity. We see also his eternality, I think, in this phrase. You cannot change something that does not exist, right? How do you change something that does not exist? How does something become something else without first existing? 
He, the Word became flesh. For Jesus to undergo the change of taking on flesh means that he existed beforehand. And this is precisely what John claims. Notice down there in verse 15. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Remember, John was born before Jesus, yet he says of Jesus, He was before me. This is what Jesus claims in chapter 8 and verse 58 when he says what? Before Abraham was, I am. The eternal I am. And this is implied in the first verses of John as we read that the word creates the universe. So the word is in existence and then brings the world into existence. So we see here evidences of Christ's eternality. Now the word became flesh. That's the first idea. There's a parallel idea here. Notice it there in verse 14. He became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's saying essentially the same thing. That the Word became flesh. The Word made his dwelling among us. What does that mean? This certainly means that Jesus came to live on planet Earth. But there's much more to it than that. To live among us means that Jesus came to live in community with us, with his people. The phrase speaks of fellowship. Made his dwelling is a Greek word which can be translated to tent among us. He lived in a tent among us. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 1. I'd like you to turn back there and notice this concept. It's screaming out at us from the pages of the Old Testament. As many commentators acknowledge, chapter 33 of Exodus. Let's take this concept of Jesus tenting among us, dwelling among us, and notice from Exodus 33, preparation for this very concept. Exodus chapter 33, you remember we go back now into the life of the the history of the nation of Israel after the exodus from Egypt. They are on their way to the promised land. In verse 33 and verse 1, we read this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people who brought up you brought up out of Egypt and go up to the land I promise on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. So that sets our timing. Now, verse 7, what seems to be simply a parenthetical note, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent and of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face. Now, if you'll notice in your Bible at Exodus 36, we find here details, and I won't read this by any means, but just page from chapter 36 and following, and you see what on the headings of your text You see evidence here of the the tent being made and all of its service being uh, provided for physically. This tent 
where Moses meets, now becomes formalized by God in the tabernacle, which he gives careful instruction concerning as the Israelites make this tent. Let's go back to 28, verses 8 and 9. All of this is going on, and it's been, we have preparation for it in chapter 25, verses 8 and 9. Exodus 25, verse 8. Exodus 25 and verse 8. Then have them, God speaking to Moses, make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So Moses, in his tent of meeting, as he meets with the Lord and, and encourages the Israelites to come and meet with the Lord, is now going to be built by these Israelites who are gifted with that ability and all the Israelites bringing gifts to see this tabernacle made. The tabernacle is made under the guidance of Aholiab and Bezalel. And let's go then to chapter 40 of Exodus and notice the end as this tabernacle is completed. Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. We'll, bring this, we'll tie this all up in just a moment. Follow here with verses 34 and 35 of Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God literally tented among his people. And this idea of God dwelling among his people is a theme that starts in the first chapters of Genesis and is found again in the last chapters of Revelation. Here he is tenting among his people, dwelling among them, living with them, communing with them in this unique way, this glorious light that's shrouded in this pillar of cloud that comes and fills this tabernacle. Do you remember another time where this happens? That's in 1 Kings with uh, uh, the temple that is built and the permanent structure on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The glory cloud comes and fills that temple. God dwelling with his people. And in fact, in the Exodus account, literally tenting among them. So the tent of meeting in the desert and the glory cloud filling it was only the shadow, the preparation for the face of Jesus Christ, who is called Emmanuel, or God with us. When Jesus came to earth, he came to live among his people. That's an amazing thought, is it not? God so loved his people that he took on our weakness, took on our flesh in order to live among us. That says to us that God longs to know his people. And I say to you this morning that God longs to know you. From cover to cover, at the very key points of the biblical revelation, God dwells among his people. And there is no one, no time in history that more indicates that love of God than when Jesus Christ came and walked this earth. In the face of Christ, we saw God tenting, dwelling among his people. And the joy of every believer in Christ is that blessed hope that one day we will dwell with him forever. Revelation 21, let me just read a few verses from 21 and 22 as I just cut out a lot of the text, but just listen as we look ahead. Then I saw 
a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen, what is this voice going to say? As the great city comes down out, I mean, this is a major event. It says in that text there, it comes down like a bride prepared for its husband. What is going to be said at this moment by the angel? Of all things, listen. Now, the dwelling of God is with men, with people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The throne of God will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will, hear it, see his face. And they, he with them, will reign forever and ever. Of all the things that could be said as the heavenly city descends, it is this, God now dwells with his people. That's the great and blessed hope that we have to see again the face of our Savior. John is jumping up and down in this gospel and saying, I saw him. I saw his face. As he says in his first epistle, we touched him. We beheld him. We handled him. We saw him. He was here. He dwelled among his people. And that is our great hope. The identification of Jesus, he is the eternal word. The, the incarnation of Jesus, he is the word become man and dwelt among us. That third word is glory. And we find in this the revelation of Jesus. The revelation of Jesus. Back to John chapter 1. The word, the word, hear it. Let it settle in, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. I think that whole last sentence as it's defined here in the NIV, that whole last sentence all hangs together around this word glory. We have seen His glory now let me tell you what that is. That's the glory, first of all, of the one and only, the unique one, Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. That's the glory that we saw. The glory defined, first of all, glory is the manifestation of God's presence. It's the manifestation of God's presence. His worth, His splendor, and all that's connected to that. We saw His glory Remember back in Exodus 40, the glory of the Lord filled the tent of meeting, meeting. It was a brightness shrouded by a pillar of cloud. It was a manifestation that God is here. God is in the tent. He's dwelling among His people. He's there. There's the cloud. There's the glory. We see the glory in the cloud. John says, we saw the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It didn't shine in the same way. In fact, we found nothing in him that was particularly unique or appealing. He was a common-looking man. But we saw the glory of the one and only of the Father. 
This glory is displayed in Christ's uniqueness, as this phrase indicates the one and only, the monogenes, the one unique one of the Father. Jesus could pray at the end of his life, John 17 and verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. No one else could pray that prayer. And John and the apostles knew it. We beheld the uniqueness of this one. John saw in Jesus that unique fellowship between Father and Son, and John celebrated it. We saw a glory as one, as the one and only, who is at the Father's side now. Verse 18. But it was displayed, we notice also in verse 14, in his character, in his unique relationship with the Father, but also in his character, which means this is what hit us when we viewed God dwelling among us. When the Son dwelt among us, this is what hit us. He was full of grace and he was full of truth. Full of grace and full of truth. These two attributes define the glory of God among us. Grace. I think we can take this in the sense primarily of graciousness. This is an amazing thought. The glory of God. The splendor of God is seen in His gracious relationship towards sinners. If I was God, I could think of other ways of displaying my glory, and God certainly has in the creation of the world. But think of that. How humble, how meek, how quiet. The glory of God displayed in grace towards sinners. I say sinners, why? Where do sinners come in here? Well, that's the whole idea of grace. Did God need to demonstrate grace within the Trinity? There's a sense in which he, of course, did in the sense of graciousness, but there's also a sense in the word grace that requires sin. God's grace is towards sinners who need that grace. It's undeserved favor. Um, within the Trinity, the grace that was displayed was always deserved. It was a graciousness in some sense, but it was never undeserved in any sense. But with sinners, God treats people with grace that they do not deserve, with a kindness they do not deserve. So as we take that theme of graciousness, I think John is saying, listen, can you imagine if he came here today? I mean, you'd have a few questions for John, wouldn't you? And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't sit down and say, John, now in your writings, there's some things that I don't understand. And forgive me, but I'm not going to ask him that. You know, how, how do you put these two words together? What's the syntax of this phrase, John, in your gospel? And what did you mean by this word here? And what would you ask him if John came back today and, and was with us here? I'd say, tell me. Tell me about Jesus. That's what I want to know. What was he like? Who was he? What was it like to be with him? Tell me about Jesus. John says he was full of grace. 
If you saw into the face of Jesus, if you walked with him from place to place, you would see a man of tender compassion. You would see a man of gentle kindness. You would see a forgiving spirit. You would see humble regard for sinners and for the weakest among us. He was full of grace and all that that word means. Do you see where I'm going with this? The story of Christmas is not a tradition to dust off and replay once a year. It is nothing less than a call to treat others with grace. Jesus was full of grace, which was nothing less than the glory of God shining through him. And Jesus was full of truth. The grace that characterized Jesus never tempered his passion for the truth. Compassion, kindness, forgiveness, humility, a love for other people, but always tethered to the truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. It's that which corresponds to the will of the sovereign God. Whether that will is displayed in God's Word, or whether that will is displayed in the events of life which He by His providence ordains, whatever it is, truth is, be, is corresponding to reality. So when I lie, when I lie to my parents, or I lie to my boss, or I lie to my mate, when I misrepresent the truth, I misrepresent reality. And I deny that God has or what God has ordained to come to pass. Something has come to pass, and I speak to someone else and say that it's not come to pass. I'm out of sync with a sovereign God. When I embrace a falsehood, I hold to that which is twisted and incompatible with the mind and the will of God. When I am confused and unsure of what I should do or believe, I'm out of sync with reality. Now, that may not always be wrong. Sometimes that's just simple hum human weakness, that we don't know what to believe and we don't know where to go, we don't know what to do. But when we're in that place, we are out of sync with God. Jesus was never out of sync with reality. Jesus believed the truth at all times. Jesus spoke the truth at all times. He defended the truth at all times. And Jesus lived the truth. To say that he was full of truth is a way of saying that he was authentic. He was faithful to God. Where, wherever God was, in belief or in purpose, Jesus was right there as well. Full of truth which was nothing less than the glory of God shining through him. I want to be like that. One reason I'd want to ask the Apostle John if he came back here, tell me, what was Jesus like, would not be for mere intellectual gratification. It would be to help me to be just like that. If someone filled in the blanks as they analyze your life, he or she is full of what? Full of self? Full of greed? Full of lust? Full of anger? Full of foolishness? 
would that people could say of us, there's a man, there's a woman, there's a young person who is full of grace and full of truth. If you're shooting at anything else, you're shooting at the wrong goal. Full of grace and full of truth. How do I get filled with that? Well, I think it defines, or we could simplify it by saying, Jesus loved God with all of his heart. He was full of truth. And he loved others as he loved himself. He was full of grace. If we love God as we should, we will long to know his mind and his heart, and we will be truth seekers. I hope that's why you're here today, that you would fill your mind and your heart with the truth through the songs that we sing, through the word that we read, through the preaching of God's word and the contemplation of it, that you would constantly feed on the truth. I hope that you are here to express your grace and your kindness in Jesus Christ to other believers. I pray often with the children as we finish off our Saturday nights, allow us by your grace to be a blessing to others tomorrow. Whoever you are, young or old, we gather here to express the grace of God to us in Christ. That's why we're here. Filling our lives with truth, filling our lives with grace, authentic living, loving others as Jesus did, will fill us with, with grace for them. Not only here, but as we take the truth and the grace of Christ and we go out into a, a fallen world. So let us remember at this time of year that Jesus is the eternal word. He became man and he lived among us. He was full of the glory of grace and truth in oneness with the Father. And I want to just encourage you again as we started this morning. These are not aspects of a seasonal tradition to be dusted off once a year and forgotten for 11 months. These are essential doctrinal beliefs on which our salvation and our sanctification depend. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We need to breathe the air of this doctrine. We must believe that Jesus is God, that He is sinless, full of grace and truth. We must believe that he became a man. And why must we believe this? I'd like to land on this further later. But let me just say briefly from Hebrews 2.9. Listen what this, to what this text says. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Why? Was he made lower than the angels? Why did he take on flesh that he might taste death for everyone? He took on flesh so that he might taste death for you. Death is the penalty of sin. And Jesus paid that penalty. Not for his own sin. He was full of grace and truth. He paid that penalty as the eternal word for you. He tasted your death. Jesus carried your sin in his body and he paid the penalty for it. 
He then rose from the grave in victory over death. The birth of Jesus, please understand, is no mere tradition. It is a truth on which our salvation depends. It is the air that we must breathe every day of our lives, not once a year, every day, and not only for now, but forever. When in the presence of the eternal Lamb of God, we dwell face to face for all eternity. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we do not even know how to fully grasp these truths and how to express ourselves and our praise to you and our thanks for what Jesus Christ has done is beyond us. How much effort has gone into seeking to articulate today through song and through word the glory of the incarnation of our Savior, and yet we fall so far short. But Father, I pray that it would settle down in our hearts in a sanctifying way who Jesus is, the Word, what He did, He became flesh, and what was revealed, the glory of God. And I pray that we'd feed on that truth today. I pray, dear Father, that we might display that grace and truth in our own lives. And I pray for anyone who knows you not as personal Savior, they would, they would come to embrace the very reason for which Jesus came. It's not a Santa Claus myth. It's not something to warm our hearts in a seasonal time. But it is a very serious truth that he died to pay the penalty of our sins. It is serious, and it is also glorious. I pray that you would turn those lights on as only you can for any who know you not in a personal way, who have not come to be washed clean of their sin. May they realize there is a way of forgiveness. We will give praise to you for what you're pleased to do as you continue to sanctify your people through these truths and to bring to conversion those who are in the darkness of sin at this very moment. Through Jesus we pray, and for his glory we intercede. Amen.